1, 46 through 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is God's word. And you can be seated, and we'll dismiss our school-age kiddos to head to the back. Who are they following? Who's meeting them? Oh, there's Miss Lindsay right there. Okay. I'm sure they know where to go by now, but... We are working through um, a series, Christmas series, Advent series, called Hope Has a Name. And uh, in conjunction with this, we are, we are doing the names of Jesus through Advent. So uh, families, anyone in the room, really, I've had, I've had a lot of joy myself just reading these different names of Jesus. And even in my Advent devotionals, um, I love this time of year. You know, I, I tried, I start back at Thanksgiving listening to these songs because I want to like suck the marrow out of the bones of this thing, right? I want to get every last bit of Christmas, right, at this time. And my kids are into it too, you know. They're like, you know, we put lights on the house and they're like, Dad, put lights on the shop. Put lights in the, I was like, that takes a lot of work just for you to, and, but I know what they're trying to do. They're, you know, let's, let's burn all the Christmas candles. Let's listen to all the Christmas music because this is a time of, of real hope. And that's why we focused on this, that hope has a name. And we've been walking through the three, I mean, the four different names of Jesus in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, the famous passage. Um, If you don't hear anything I have to say today, I want you to hear this, that God wants to be with you. He does. And even when we try to do everything our own way, the steady love of God, God wants to be with you. You can, you can literally, you can walk with him. His peace can guide you. We talked last week about his, the wonderful counselor. Ben, ben Rector has a song called uh, Steady Love, and it's not a worship song. It's probably in your wedding. Um, but every morning as I'm reading that, I've been devotional, and I read Mary's song this morning. And that's the phrase I just keep thinking about, just the steady love of God. It is just so steady. The reason that love song is so popular is because that's the kind of love that we want. We want a partner who's going to be steady. It's going to be committed, it's going to be there, it's going to be faithful. We want steady love. We want it so much because it mirrors the relationship of God to us. And God says, listen, I have, I have crossed the chasm of sin and death and hell so that we can walk with each other. So you can experience and walk in steady love. Miles, you should take that song and put some new words to it, Steady Love. Make that a worship song. Miles mentioned that he and I went to college together, and we did, and we had a little Bible study, and he would step in the Bible study and be like, okay, listen, I've been watching the news, and I've been reading this British poet, Lord Byron, and I wrote this song out of those two converging or something like that all the time. <laughs> it was always way over our head. But it was like, that sounds good, man. Let's, let's go for it. That sounds good. 
One of the phrases you hear over and over Christmas season is God with us. And that statement comes from a prophecy that the prophet Isaiah, the prophet was someone who spoke for the Lord. The Lord would speak to them and they would speak for the Lord. The prophet Isaiah spoke this idea uh, in Isaiah 7 and again in Isaiah 9 that a virgin will conceive a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. This is the steady love. And I want all of us to be reminded and some of us maybe to know for the first time today that as we leave here today, that it's possible for God to literally be with you. When you believe and know that God is with you, it'll change everything in your life. I'm not just talking about Christmas cheer. No, this is the invitation of biblical belief means uh, that we would rest our weight on it, that we would believe it to that level, that kind of belief. Belief in something that was made to hold us, that will never let us down. That kind of belief will literally change your life forever. Think about it. What if you knew today that you could leave here convinced, literally convinced, that God was with you and for you and on your side? He'd be in the car with you and have lunch with you. And as you wake up from your Sunday nap there, he'd be sitting on the couch with you. Can you imagine that kind of life that every problem and every issue that we could take to him and he would have this wonderful counsel to us? Wouldn't that be amazing? And this is the promise of Christmas, that such things are literally possible. That he's working, that he's your advocate, that he's on your side, that when you go to sleep, he keeps working. When you don't know what to do, he knows what to do and he begins doing it. And he leads us into partnering with him in that very mission of partnering with God in what he's doing around the world. Here's what Isaiah promised would happen when the child was born. This is in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This is the promise of God saying, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to turn the lights on. Imagine yourself in a cave with no light and no flashlight and no idea of how to get out of there. And the best you could do is feel the walls and feel the ground. I mean, it would be just hopeless with no light until the light came on and you could see where to go. And this is the imagery that God uses here about him stepping into earth. But this prophecy was to an actual people, and, and I want to talk about them for a minute. What, what kind of darkness were they living in? We mentioned this just briefly last week, but Israel as a nation was under siege. So economically, things weren't good. Their very existence as a nation was threatened. They felt like they were dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, Scripture says. Well, if you go back a couple chapters to chapter 7, we kind of see what's going on. That there's been two countries, the country of Syria and the country of uh, Jerusalem. Remember, after Solomon took over, then Solomon's son took over and they divided the kingdom in two. So we have Judah in the south, that's where Jerusalem is, and Israel in the north. And so the king of Israel, uh, you know, the, the enemy of my enemies here, is coming together to, uh, they, they can't fight them, they can't fight Judah, they can't overtake Jerusalem. And so what they do is they set up on either side, the road in and the road out, and they said, we're not going to let any food come in and we're not going to let any waste come out and we're just going to kill them through this siege. 
Well, King Ahaz is scared to death. And this is what it says in chapter 7. King Ahaz, the son of Jotham, when the, Israel, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not yet mount an attack. That's in verse 1. Verse 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, he's the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You ever had such bad news where your literal body begins to shake like the trees in a windstorm? And the reason that they were so shaken, the king and the people, was political instability. These two different nations bordering them were threatening war. They didn't know what to do. They thought that surely these other countries would win. They were just political instability and then widespread anxiety it's not just the king it says all the people were shaking can you imagine the level of anxiety they're overwhelmed with the possibility the darkness of uncertainty about the future the darkness and fear about their safety and the safety of those people they loved the fear of being abandoned and all alone the fear of even greater fear of being abandoned by God himself because of their sin they had angered God and had God just left them alone to, to die there? Maybe you feel some of that same anxiety, some of that same darkness. Widespread anxiety, uncertainty about the future, fear of being alone, the feeling of being abandoned, the fear of death itself, your death or the death of someone else. So what did God do in such a situation? He stepped in and he gave Ahaz, the king of Israel. We're going to get to the Christmas stuff in a second. Just hold on. He gave a promise to Ahaz. This is the prophecy that we get. For unto you is born a prophecy. A prophecy was somewhere where he would predict something that was about to happen. And he goes in and he gives this promise to Ahaz that there's a young girl who's in the royal court who's going to have a child. And before this child knows the difference between right and wrong, we don't have time to go into all of that, um, that God's going to take care of these other two nations. But Ahaz didn't want to believe it. We talked last week how most biblical prophecy has an immediate meaning for the people who it was written to. And it has a messianic meaning for the coming of Christ, and this is one of those. It had an immediate meeting. This girl's going to uh, give birth to a son, and before they know the difference between right and wrong, that they're going to be dealt with. But it also has a greater meaning about the coming Messiah who won't just alleviate temporary darkness, but all of darkness. And so this word gets to Ahaz, and Ahaz doesn't want to believe it. So Ahaz, not depending on the strength of the Lord, in the midst of the darkness, what he does is he goes and makes a Agreement with a bigger country outside of them, Assyria, which God told them not to do. The words of God in verse 4 of chapter 7 was, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two, this is what God calls these other countries, smoldering stubs of firewood. But Ahaz didn't accept the word of the Lord. He went and made the alliance with the Assyrian king. And the word to Ahaz was, Ahaz, you know what your problem is? Your problem is not what you're scared of, but what you're trusting in. The problem is actually not the problem. I mean, the fear of siege, that's a scary thing. And the fears that you face are legitimate fears, financial fears and health fears and 
political instability and widespread anxiety and they're, they're real fears. And I'm not here to dismiss those fears. But what God is trying to get Ahaz to see and what Jesus is trying to get us to see today, the problem is really not the problem in front of us. The problem is not what we're scared of. The problem really lies in what we're trusting in. As we mentioned last week, the birth of a Savior would deal with our real problems. And many fail to see that the greatest problem beneath the problem is what we're trusting in. Our greatest need today is to know and be known by God, to walk with him in relationship, to be with him. And so because of that, this prophecy given is going to give four names. The greatest gifts of Christmas that we'll receive this year and every year will be these four things that Jesus are to us. And we talked last week about our wonderful counselor because we need wisdom, because life is messy. And sometimes it's hard to know which way to go and, and where we should go and what we should bring with us and what decisions we should make. We need wisdom. Counselor literally means helper, someone who walks with you through life, shoulders the heavy load, and promises eventually to turn every bad thing into a good thing. Isn't that amazing? But then our focus today is this idea of mighty God. This is why we read the Magnificat, because that's what Mary thanks God for. It's amazing that this Mary responds in this song, impromptu song that she's just going to write out. She contains, she's, she's a 13 or 14 year old. She has 35 references to the Old Testament. What a challenge to our teenagers today. If an angel appeared, gave you some earth shattering news, would you immediately start writing down a song that contained 35 Old Testament references? What does that even mean? It meant that Mary knew the word of God that she loved it and she depended on it and she sang it so much so that when an angel showed up in her life, her response back to God was writing this beautiful song. And what, what would we, what would we, what, what could we write back? What, what words of God could we contain in our song back to God? John three sixteen, or maybe, maybe Psalms 1 or Genesis 1 and Mary just can't write fast enough. All these promises and Habakkuk and Isaiah and Ezekiel and the promise seen Genesis are just boiling up. And she's just writing this beautiful song back to the Lord because the word of God was in her heart. And because it was, it came out of her mouth. Mighty God. Isaiah 9, to read the passage. In verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Mighty God. When you read it, it makes you think, if you've read the Psalms at all, that God was always called the Almighty God. He was Almighty but this is the same name that's used of Jesus himself in Revelation 1, chapter 8. Something strange was happening that God didn't just send another prophet or a general, that God himself would come. Jesus, the Son of God, being equal with God in every way. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact representation of the Father. Jesus would say of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus comes as mighty God, God in the flesh. This is why Colossians 2 says, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. 
John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is God himself, Jesus coming as mighty God. Now this prophecy comes about 200 years after King David. King David was famous, of course. Even if this is your first time in a church, you've probably heard the story before of David and the giant he fought named Goliath. David's famous. There's a famous statue of him that was created by Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtles um, guy. Maybe the most famous stories in fighting this incredible giant. We don't have time to go through this whole story. I read it this week, though. Just such a cool story. Let me paint the scene real quickly. The army of Israel is on one mountain and a valley between them and the army of uh, the Philistines, that was their enemy, was on the foot of the other mountain. And every morning their champion Goliath, who's nearly 10 foot tall, would come out and he would taunt Israel with this challenge, send me your best warrior, we will fight in this valley and if you win, if Israel wins, then, then we will be your servants and if, if we win this battle, then, then you will be our servants. And he would taunt them every morning and the army of Israel was scared to death. But again, the problem was not the problem. The problem was who they were trusting in and they're about to learn this. So David, his brothers are fighting and he's going to show up one day to bring them some mozzarella sticks or something. And he's going to make, he's just watching sheep, just a young little boy, you know, probably sixth, seventh grader. He's going to come and he's going to bring the cheese. And he's like, why is, why is nobody fighting? Why, why are y'all just staring at each other? And they tell him about the taunt that happens every day. And then David hears the taunt himself. And David moves from confused to this holy anger. He asked, who is this that defies the army of God? David says, well, if none of you cowards will fight him, I'll fight him. David, his brothers try to shut him up, say he's there just for selfish gain. David basically pronounced the same judgment that Isaiah brought to Ahaz 200 years later. Your problem is not the fear of Goliath, it's who you're trusting in. So he goes and tells King Saul, hey, I'll go fight the giant. And King Saul, who's scared to death, is like, well, no, you can't do that. And he's like, yeah, I can do it. I, God was with me when I fought the bear, and God was with me when I fought the lion, and I can go do this. And he's like, okay, well, then put my armor on. At least, you know, he's being generous, you know. The armor didn't fit. I don't have this on the screen, but I want to read the text to you what happens. David steps onto the battlefield and the Philistine this Goliath said to David I am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods the Philistine said to David come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields <laughs> David's got a little lip on him too verse 45 then David said back to the uh, Philistine you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, David says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I'll cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know today that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
when Goliath the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. I love this. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. That's an incredible story. We don't read the part where he goes and takes Goliath's own sword and chops off his head. And it's just like, oh, man, like 300 kind of like, you know. It's funny to me that David is the most unlikely hero of this story. David wasn't even in the army. He was the little shepherd boy that's bringing some mozzarella sticks. Like he, he's not even supposed to be there. He's not trained. He's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any weapons. It's, it's, what made David the hero? It wasn't his training. It wasn't his pedigree. It wasn't even the armor he was wearing. It wasn't, it wasn't even the weapons that he was carrying. He literally had, had nothing but the, but the slingshot. What made him the one? Not size or skill or pedigree or armor. No, the thing that set David apart was actually quite simple. David believed that his God was bigger than Goliath and that his God would fight for him. Now, everyone on the Israel battlefield, they all believed that God was bigger in theory. But David believed it both in his heart and his head. He had a working theology. David was convinced that he served a mighty God. The word mighty God, the words are made up from Hebrew words, El Gabor. Several times this word El is used throughout Isaiah. You're probably familiar with some of them. El Shaddai, Elohim. El just means uh, of, of the divine. It's something that describes something bigger than us. It's this God, El Gabor. Gabor, the adjective that describes who God is, meant strong and mighty warrior or victorious champion. The word would be used of David's mighty men. You've heard of David's mighty men. There are 37 of them. They were the special forces of Israel. Benaiah, one of them, on a snowy day, killed a lion with his bare hands in a pit. It's a pretty cool story. You should go read that one. That same warrior faced a seven-foot Egyptian, and he didn't have any weapons with him. And so he stole the, as they went in hand-to-hand combat, stole the Egyptian sword, killed the Egyptian I mean, this is just amazing. Another one of these mighty men in battle by himself in hand-to-hand combat killed 800 of the enemy. Pretty, these were the elite forces. And in Hebrew, this group of mighty men is called the Gaborim, the mighty warriors. And it's that same word that's used to describe a baby who will be born, Jesus that he will be mighty God, that he will be the hero of strength. Now, at Christmas time, especially if you only come at Christmas and Easter, if you come at Christmas, you tell, you know, Jesus, the cute little, little baby's in the manger. Then you come back at Easter and he's bloodied on a cross. And if we're not careful, there's only two things you really find out about Jesus. You're going to miss a whole lot about him. Because... The first time he came, he came to identify with us as a suffering servant. But friends, he's not in the manger anymore. It used to bother my dad so bad when he would either see Jesus still on a cross, a crucifix, and he would say out loud, when people could hear him, he's not on the cross anymore. And I was like, Dad, you're embarrassing me, man. Come on, man, come on. You know, they just, you know, doing their thing, man. This is cool. 
He would also, we'd see news about the baby being stole out of the manger and everyone's like sacrilege. He's like, it serves him right. He's not in the manger anymore. He's not there. I'm like, okay, okay. I don't know if he's like, you know, condoning thievery or whatever, but he's not on the cross and he's not in the manger. He came as a baby so he could be with us. He died on the cross because he's taking your penalty for sin and mine. But he's not there anymore. As David's men were mighty, Jesus so much more. He's not someone who's just in our military that this promise is born to you as this baby and it offers this very strength that the mighty God can be literally with you. But you, you ever got a gift that you didn't know you didn't know what to do with? One time I gave Ashley a mail shredder for Christmas. Um, and it wasn't like our first year married either. It was like year five. Like I should have known better, but you know, the little display at Office Depot got me. as like a mail shredder that would shred the, like the fake credit cards that they send you, you know, like, hey, you're approved. And we never knew what we did with those. And I would just throw them away. But Ashley was diligent to cut them up because someone could steal our identity. And I was like, no one cares that much. What are they going to get, $13 from us? It's not like it's a big deal. She would have a stack. It would stack up. And then she'd spend Saturdays. This is before kids cutting up the fake credit cards and put them in. And so I saw this mail shredder. I was like, this is going to be perfect. So I'm going to get this mail shredder for her. And I got it. And it was, you know, this big, kind of hard to to hide. And I wrapped that thing up on Christmas morning. We opened that sucker up. I wish you could see her face. If you know, if you've ever seen that look by Ashley, she is like sweet, sweet, joy, joy all the time until you give her a mail shredder for Christmas, Christmas morning. Any of you husbands bought your wife a rifle, you know, to take them hunting? It's kind of the same thing. I think it's kind of the same thing. Um, what do we do with this gift of money? I read this week in one of my Advent devotionals about this man who had a real problem, his son was being bullied. His son's name's Joe. Joey was a kid that was full of life and he had just uh, finished seventh grade and was going into his eighth grade year. And this kid was funny and he walked confidently and he had tons of friends and he brought so much joy to his family. He was one of those that they just loved to have dinner together and uh, Joe was witty. And then a few weeks into eighth grade year, he just changed. He like lowered his head in cowardice and his grades started to drop. And they would have dinners of family. He wouldn't say anything. And they would tell Joe, what's going on, man? And he was just like, I just want to talk about it. And I could kind of go to my room and I finished eating in my room. And something was so radically wrong. And mom and dad are like, what's happening to him? And they're calling the school and the school doesn't know. And Finally, they get a call one day from one of Joe's friends' dads and said, hey, I just want you to know my son just told me that Joe's being bullied by some kids at school and, and it's just not pretty. And I just wanted you to know as a dad, I would want to know. And so Joe's dad is trying to think of a way, okay, how can I take these little kids out? You know, because that's what a dad does when your kids are being taken advantage of. And uh, luckily, mom stops in and says, no, you can't do that. And so he's just, he's, he's, man, what can I do? And he's thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. I'll get him a taser. I get him a taser and get in his lunchbox. And also, mom talked him out of that, which is good. He's so worried about it. And one day, he gets a message, Facebook messenger from one of his friends, one of his college buddies that had been in, in the Army, Special Forces, actually. And he had been forced retired but didn't really know what to do. So he emailed 
Joe's dad and said, hey, I, I need just a little help. You got any jobs offering? I'll, I'll do anything. Idea came on, right? He's like, you know what I'll do? I'll get him to go with Joe to school. And his mom's like, that's so stupid. Why would you do that? He said, let me just see what I can do. So he called the principal, and the principal said, well, we're, we're trying to hire a custodian. Would he want to come and just be a custodian? He said, that'd be perfect. And so he got the, the military friend came in. He got the job at the school as a custodian. And he just timed it where every time that Joe would walk out of class, he would just be right there next to him. And he would just be pushing a broom behind him or taking care of things. And second day after Christmas break, they're there. And Joe's at his locker. And here comes the friends, the bullies. And he can overhear what they're saying to him and the insults. And right as conflict's about to happen, this retired military special forces takes off his jacket and he's wearing a shirt that says you mess with Joe you mess with me this guy had tree trunks for arms needless to say there was no bullying and Joe got his got his life back and he got his joy back and he he was he was he was himself and it wasn't because over Christmas break he learned jujitsu or something no it was because Joey got a defender Listen to me. Life will beat you up. And sin bullies you. And shame and guilt and fear, they bully you. And temptation and lust and relational conflict and all the grief there is in this life. On top of that, there's an enemy who through big things and little things and simply through annoying thing is always hurling this voice of accusation against you, never relenting at bullying you. And apart from all the issues we have in ourselves, this enemy just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. Have you heard it? Have you heard this voice of accusation? You're just having a good day, so full of joy, and you just wake up in the funk, or you're just like, why am I this way? And your head is lowered, and you're walking in fear again. And this is is normal, I hate to say. What happens is the childlike faith we once had seems to disappear through pain and disappointment and grief. We slowly lose our joy and our confidence. We lower our head in defeat and discouragement. And we just think, if I can just muster up enough to get through another day. And Jesus is here to remind you this Christmas that he's not in the manger or blooded on a cross, that he's sitting on the throne and he's ruling and reigning. He told the disciples after his resurrection that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and that he gives that authority to us. Isn't that incredible? The mighty God living in us. Talk about a tree trunk for an arm. He's the mighty God. He's with you. You ever thought about what was the greatest feat of strength that Jesus accomplished while he was on earth? You know, he limited himself in his humanity most days, but every once in a while he would, he would take that coat off. And you would see those tree trunk for arms and he would cast the demonic out of a person. Or maybe that time where they're in the middle of the hurricane and he sh- stops it. When he called Lazarus back from the dead, that's pretty incredible. There's a massive amount of power in our champion, Jesus Christ. But maybe his greatest moment of strength came not how you think, but in his most humiliating moment. As he hung on the cross, bloodied and bruised, with all the power of heaven at his fingertips, he was every bit the mighty God. 
than the Goliaths of his day were at the foot of the cross. If, you, if you're so powerful, why don't you pull yourself off that cross? But he kept his mouth closed. And he died the death that you should have died and I should have died so that we could live a life of victory and peace and abundance. What a mighty God. Colossians 2 verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses and sins. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Isn't that amazing? What a mighty God. So when the voice of accusation comes and the fear and the doubt and the shame and the guilt and sin, friends, don't cower in defeat. Those are just words. Your enemy has already been defeated. Through the death of Jesus, he proved his love to you and his power over the greatest enemy, the greatest bully that we would ever face. And he was victorious. See, I think a lot of us came in here today wanting our circumstances to change this Christmas. And that's fine to pray. But what if there was something even greater that changed this Christmas? What if it was to know that God was with you? And know whatever you're afraid of pales into, in comparison to the one you trust in. To know him as everlasting father. Jason's talking about that next week. To be reunited with him as mighty God. To have him as your wonderful counselor. To know the prince of peace. Friends, you can know him. Listen, I love what Shane said about uncovering the kingdom of God. This week I <clears throat> was playing golf with a buddy. And uh, we were playing in East Texas and... Uh, playing golf and there's a guy behind us who was a solo which is terrible if you're playing golf to get a solo behind you because they're going to be on your heels so and when I play golf I don't really play golf I go look for golf balls that's really what I do I, I go look for golf balls mine that I hit in the woods and everyone else's that hit theirs in the woods you know like I don't keep score I keep like positive golf balls for the day that's how I know I've won if I'm 10 you know then then I should be a PGA Tour pro because I can find golf balls anywhere so I don't like people rushing me because I like to spend my time, you know, looking for golf balls. And so we called the guy up and he, he, he came up and um, he played golf about like I do. And so uh, he was not fast. And then he just kept having problems all day. Like his cart broke down. And so then he had to go walk back to the course. And then he came back and then he ran out of golf balls. And so I had some, but mine were good enough for him. So, um, so then he went back again. And so every time we'd let him in front of us, he would end up back behind us. And finally was like, bro, why don't you just play with us? And so... This guy's name was Dakota. He starts joining us right at the break about uh, between hole 9 and 10, and then he plays with us in 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, and we're getting to know him a little more and connecting and turn, make the turn on 16. And uh, he said, man, I'm so glad I run into you guys. I'm like, oh, yeah? He's like, well, my dad died last night unexpectedly. I was like, oh, man, was he sick? What was going on? He's like, his, I mean, he's 48 years old. He's, he's hurt his back at work the day before yesterday, and he took some medicine and had some kind of reaction, we think, and he passed. 
You have those moments where you know why God put you somewhere and you're like, oh, okay, this is not about the golf or the golf balls. It's about my man, Dakota. And uh, every hole, we're just trying to love on him and talk to him and we get through with everything. And he told us that his wife had, he and his wife had been split and they're just trying to work that out and she just moved back in and this and then this happened and he's been through it. And he used this word. He said, I came out here just wondering if God's, where's God at in all of this? And God sent me two pastors to play golf with. We huddled up there on the, after the 18th green and just cried out to God for him. This is the word he said. Text me after we were done and he said, listen, this is too wonderful for words. And that's what I ended the sermon with last week. This is too wonderful for words. His counsel is too wonderful for words. He's a mighty God that can shift the plans of whoever he needs to to get them at the right place and carts dying and running out of golf balls so that Dakota knows that he's loved. And just because it feels like darkness, his greatest problem is not the darkness. It's who he's trusting in. Friends, can I invite you to trust in King Jesus today? It would be pastoral malpractice not for, me, for me not to give you an invitation. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about showing up at church. I'm not talking about giving money. I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about communion. I'm not talking about all those things. I'm talking about knowing and walking with King Jesus. That's, that's the offer of Christmas, that he came all that way so that he could be with you. Not just to take you to heaven one day, but he could be with you now in the mess. And that he could begin working. If you're a believer in here today, walking in anxiety or despair, I want you to take heart and know that God's with you. Psalms 3, I read this morning. But you, O Lord, are shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I love this. Life got you beat down, discouraged. Financial crisis. Health crisis. Relational crisis. Friends, lift your head. Allow him to lift your head up today. If you're not a believer in this room today, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that God's not with you. He loves you deeply, but you're utterly alone. But the good news is the greatest gift he brought was himself. And if you'll just receive him, unto us a child is born, a son is given. It's a gift that is given, and all you have to do is receive it. John 1, 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see it? If you're not a believer in this room, all you have to do is take a step of faith and receive this gift. You can't earn the presence and approval of God. You don't get it by coming to church enough or by giving again or being good enough. None of that. You have to receive it. It's the only way you can get it. Have you received him? I mean, personal personally not not what your dad did or grandpa did no what have you received him do you want it my encouragement is for you to do that today let me pray for us and the band's coming and our communion servers are coming we're gonna take communion in just a minute so we come to communion today i just want you to thank him for being mighty god 
I want you to think about all the mighty things that he has done. God is working. He's working on your behalf. And just like David was not, did not flinch in the sight of Goliath. We don't have to flinch at the voices of accusation of the enemy, of sin and shame and guilt. Jesus shows up wearing that, wearing that shirt. You got a problem with Luke, you got a problem with me. Insert your name there. He's our mighty God. Jesus, I pray that you would do the work that you need to in the lives of us who've gathered, of us who are listening. For those that have been just walking through a season of so discouraged and beat down, I pray that you would be the lifter of their heads today. That they would see all they have to be thankful for and celebrate you, even in the midst of the pain. The pain doesn't necessarily go away. But we can claim, blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of our darkest and deepest season. As a matter of fact, it's when we begin to praise him and enter with thanksgiving that the darkness begins to lift a little bit. Those in this room who don't believe today, I pray, Jesus, would you show yourself to them? families. Jesus, would we worship you this Christmas as mighty God? Would we quit letting the world tell us how we're supposed to worship our King? You would be mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Communion's here. You come when you're ready. You don't have to be a member of our church. You do have to be part of God's family, though. So uh, if that's you, you come when you're ready. We'll have our prayer team in the back. If you just like to pray with someone, just talk about the rough season you're in, just to pray that God would lift your head. We've got some prayer counselors back there that, that they've been amped all week just to pray with you today. So feel free to do that. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Do what God lays on your heart.